I'm Adam Strauss. And I'm Jordan Iper, MD. And this is not therapy. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much therapy. It's not therapy, man. Okay, we're almost there. We are almost at Clara. The present moment. Yeah. Almost, not quite. It's sort of like that uh, Zeno's paradox. It's this thing in, I think it's Greek philosophy. Zeno sounds Greek. But if you go, if you travel half the distance from point A to point B every day, you're forever approaching point B, but you never actually get there. And that's what it's felt a little bit like Clara. We've provided all this background information and context, but we haven't actually talked about what went down with her. Clara, for new listeners, um, is the woman I came out to the San, San Francisco Bay Area to quarantine with. And after after five days together, she actually left to go to her parents' place. Yeah, so we're almost there. We're almost at the present moment. Before we arrive there fully, I wanted to give a little bit more context. So we had talked about the general pattern where I had a particularly significant romantic relationship end 17 years ago. In the aftermath of that, I found it very difficult to open my heart to women. It wasn't a conscious thing, but I would always find reasons why, oh, you know, it's not really going to work out with this person. So maybe we'll have a superficial sexual relationship, sort of a friends with benefits thing, or maybe it'll go a little bit further, but I'm not really going to commit emotionally to anyone. And that's been the pattern for many years with a few exceptions and then in recent years, there's been more of a shift. It really started with Maddie. I met her in 2017 and there was an immediate connection and there was, it was such an easy connection. It really, and I talked about this last episode too, often when I'd meet women who I felt were not women I wanted to commit to, the reason my mind would come up with, not to say that it's an entirely groundless reason, often would be that we, you know, we just don't, we don't really connect. We don't have great conversation. And with Maddie, the conversation was it, it, we could talk about anything and everything for hours. We could never really finish a sentence. One of us would start to say something, it would trigger an association and the other that would lead uh, her into a story, which would lead me into a reflection. And it was this sense when we were talking of this unfolding of this discovery, we were discovering not just one another, but also things about ourselves and not to get too poetic, but things about the universe, about the world. It felt like a constant low level sort of revelation. And that's what I value really more than anything, not just with romantic partners, but also with friends. That's something that I, I get a lot from our conversations. And I hadn't had that with a woman. It had been a very long time. And so there was that element that was there. And then I found her beautiful. We enjoyed a lot of the same activities. We loved dancing. She was also into psychedelics and plant medicine, not nearly so much as I, I am, but that was a part of her life. And it was remarkable how quickly I was like, okay, checks this box, checks this box, checks this box. Yep, this is the one. This is the one. Like literally, we, we met one day. We met at a, at a dance party, actually. We hooked up that night, but didn't sleep together. We got together the next night. We did sleep together. We got together the next night. We decided we weren't going to get together the night after that. We're like, all right, let's just take a break. But then at like 11 o'clock at night, I was in the city. She texted me. We wound up getting together that night. It was very full on, but also very easy. It felt like just comfortable. 
it's a cliche, but it felt like we'd known each other forever from the very beginning. And so by really by three or four nights in, I was kind of like, oh, yep, this is the one. This is the <laughs> one. And it, it's kind of sad or pathetic in a way. But so Annie, who's new <laughs> listeners, <laughs> is the one who I had this relationship been 17 years ago in the aftermath, the OCD developed and, and also this sort of hardness or unwillingness to open my heart developed. And I had this thought three or four days in with Maddie that, oh, now it's okay that things didn't work out with Annie because I have it with Maddie and it's going to be even better. It was like that somehow validates or negates the pain and loss I'd felt around Annie and all of the suffering and loneliness since, because now I've finally found it. I've finally found the one. So we had, you know, we saw each other maybe five out of six nights and then she was going away for the weekend and she was coming back on a Sunday and we were texting and she was just tired. So we weren't going to see each other. And I started feeling a lot of insecurity. And I'm bringing this up because of course, what we're doing on this podcast is talking about specific issues I'm having and, and issues that may arise for you as well. Challenges, decisions that are alive in our life at the moment, but we also want to go deeper. We want to use this to illuminate deeper patterns and I think this is a signpost in that regard that when she wasn't unavailable, there was a lot of insecurity. And in fact, as at that same night. So just, when so she, she wasn't unavailable, there was a lot when, of Sorry, insecurity. when she wasn't, sorry, she when she wasn't available. So we'd had this. When she was not available. Yeah. Yeah. And that same night, a woman who I'd had one of these, you know, pretty much friends with benefits relationships for a long time, but we hadn't seen each other in a few months texted me out of the blue and wanted to see me. And I felt a lot of anguish about it, about that decision. I was like, well, you know, I shouldn't really see her because why even tempt myself? Mind you, there'd been no discussion of exclusivity with Maddie at this point, but you know, it felt to me like this is the thing, this is, this is the one. And long story short, I did have sex that night and I felt devastated after. I felt, mm. why did I do this? Is it some sort of self-sabotage thing? I finally have the thing with Maddie that I've been longing for for so long, and I'm going to risk it just for a, a cheap, not a cheap, but for something that I know is not the thing. <clears throat> Those are me. kind of big, you know, like very big thoughts to be having about a relationship that was five days old at this point, six right. days old. Like I ruined <laughs> yes. it. It's over. Yeah. You hadn't even had a conversation about being exclusive. Yes. So that's really interesting. And I was so devastated, Jordan. I, did, I barely slept that night. The next day, I remember I had a long conversation with, him when I, with one of my close female friends and I started crying on the phone. I was just mm -hmm. so, so anxious that I'd screwed this thing up. So then I did see Maddie again. And well, it emerged fairly quickly that actually Maddie was not looking for an exclusive partnership. Mm. She didn't want a boyfriend. She didn't want a partner. I don't think it reflected her assessment of me or our relationship. And it actually turned out she had also, she was also somewhat involved with someone else. So in her mind, it wasn't exclusive. So when it turned out Maddie didn't want a partnership, I thought about it and I felt like, you know, I really value this woman. I love connecting with her, but I know what I want. I know I want to be in a deep, committed partnership with a woman. And if Maddie doesn't want that, then I shouldn't settle for, for less than that. 
and I broke it off. Hmm. And it was painful, but it felt like it was the right thing. It felt like, hey, this is a strong decision. I'm making a difficult choice for going short-term pleasure, not just the pleasure of sex, but the pleasure of this woman's company who I really, really, really enjoyed her, her company. I'm going to forego that in the service of honoring what I truly want. But I will say today from, from my vantage point now, I wonder if it wasn't yet another manifestation of me finding a reason to walk away from something, to shut the door on something. If indeed there wasn't a sense of vulnerability, again, I hadn't felt this strongly about a woman in many years and I don't like that vulnerability. And so that provided a convenient though justifiable reason to end it. And I will say if I could do it again, I think I wouldn't have been so quick to walk away. It wasn't like she didn't want to spend a lot of time with me. It wasn't like she didn't want to get closer. It wasn't like she was shying away from emotional intimacy. It was more this decision I'd made that I know what I want. And another irony is now at this point, I think I actually probably don't want an exclusive partnership, but we'll get to that. Hmm. So that relationship ended. And I bring that up because that was an example of where I really didn't hold back. I will say early on, with Maddie, there were some moments where I had some doubts, and I'm not going to get into the specific nature of these doubts for two reasons. One, it's possible she'll listen to this, and I wouldn't want to say something that might upset her, not that I think she'd be devastated. Uh, but two, it's also irrelevant. I do recognize this is what my OCD brain does. It finds flaws. So I don't want to give too much credence by outlining them, but suffice to say the flaws that I would typically find with women could be physical appearance, could be sense of humor, could be we don't have great conversation, could be a sense of, oh, I don't know if they're considerate enough. I mean, it, it, it's it's endless. Yeah. So yeah. early on with Maddie, there was some of that, I don't know, but that fell away very quickly. And I really was without reservation willing to commit to her until she didn't want a partnership, though maybe that was just a, an excuse. Yeah. I mean, you've been wanting that for a while now. It's I well, I hear you kind of questioning that decision in some ways, but also it sounds like some a moment where you were really honoring yourself in in a new form and sort of something you've come into in more recent years of owning the fact that you want a more committed love relationship. So I thought at the time, I think as we get into Beth, another more recent relationship, and then ultimately to Clara, the long-awaited Clara finale. I think I think some things may emerge that at least have caused me to question that narrative around Maddie. That yes, I know what I want, and I was in integrity around yeah. that. I, I suspect that there was at least a fairly strong element of mm, use this as a reason to distance myself. Use the fact that she doesn't want the partnership. Yeah. But we will, I think more will become clear with that. But I was encouraged by the way everything went with Maddie in the sense that, wow, for the first time in so long, I was willing to go there. And that felt like a big step. And it felt like an opening that, okay, things didn't work out with Maddie because we wanted different things. But now that I've made this shift, I feel, I felt at the time confident that I would meet someone else who was more on the same page. Mm -hmm. And Indeed, it seemed like that happened um, six or seven months later when I met this woman, Beth. With her, initially there were doubts, but those also dropped away fairly quickly. And it, it felt like we were on the same page uh, with things. And it felt like, you know what I'd say with Beth, 
it wasn't so much that the doubts entirely disappeared, but they sort of became not a factor. I started to realize, okay, my mind is going to throw up these doubts from time to time. But the fact is there's no, well, there was no decision to make, you know, because my mind often the, the way my mind will work is it won't throw up things that are a problem now, but could theoretically be a problem in the future. My mind may find something and may say, is this going to be the woman, you know, you're going to spend the rest of your life with? Yeah, sure. She's great. But is she absolutely the best one? And there was a little bit of that with Beth. And then I was able to say, okay, you know what? That's just some sort of weird future projection. I don't have to decide if I'm going to spend my life with her. We've, we've been dating for two or three weeks at this point. All I have to decide is, do I want to continue opening up to this relationship? Do I want to continue getting closer to her? And that was an unequivocal yes for me. And so that in and of itself felt like progress that I was able to kind of just let my mind do what it's doing, but ultimately make the decision to move forward. And similar to Maddie, there was great conversation. It felt like a rich connection with a lot of potential to deepen. And the reason that one ended was actually she got back together with her ex-boyfriend. And on one hand, honestly, there was a little bit of relief because there had been some of these doubts that, again, weren't preventing me from getting close to her, but had never entirely gone away. And so it was sort of like, okay, well, you know, we talked in the first episode when I was in the throes of this OCD decision about whether to stay in the Bay Area or go to the East Coast, how relieving it is when a decision is taken off the table, even if the way it's taken off the table is itself painful for you. Yeah. Right. We talked about your situation where you had all these great plans for the summer. You weren't exactly sure what you were going to do. And now instead, you're probably going to be on coronavirus lockdown, which is worse than any of the plans you're considering. But you find that relieving because the decision has you've been relieved of that obligation to make that decision. Yeah. Try me in a few more weeks. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it's getting old already. No. Yeah, true. absolutely. The, um, yeah, it totally resonates because the thing is that when there's a decision to be made, there's the opportunity for you to make a mistake and be bad. And that, in my opinion, is the thing that's much more intolerable than a bad thing happening to you. Someone breaks up with you, your plans get canceled, it rains on your wedding day. That, in my mind, is much more tolerable than me making the wrong decision and therefore having having messed up or being bad there being something wrong with me etc right you chose to not spring for the extra money to get the uh the big you know canopy for your wedding you could have avoided <laughs> it if you'd done something different versus it's unavoidable yeah. absolutely right the feeling that one could have avoided the loss is more painful often than the loss itself yeah yeah yeah. And so with, with, with Beth, there was a feeling of, okay, well, there's nothing I could have done. Clearly she was still in love with her ex and she was going to get back together with him. And also there was a feeling of, okay, now, yeah, maybe there was a little feeling if I'm going to be totally honest that, well, maybe now I can find someone where there is no doubts. Intellectually, <laughs> I don't believe that exists. I think oh, yeah. I have enough experience to know that my mind is going to throw up some objections or doubts with anyone but there still is that almost magical thinking part of me that's like, oh yeah, it's the OCD part that's like, I can get this perfectly right. Yeah, I can optimize 100%. Yeah. And I let's be so clear. People struggle with that. 
particularly in this domain, because this is yeah. the big decision for many people. Yeah. You can change jobs. You can you can move to a new city. But at least assuming we're in a context of monogamy, this is the one one time lifelong decision. Right. If we're assuming monogamy is something we could certainly come back to another time, that's absolutely. Well, I think we'll probably get to it as we get more into Clara, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just, before we move on, I want to highlight this other, because I do hear that with Maddie and Beth, that there was definitely some growth compared to decades past for you i think you were much more clear in what you wanted decades that sounds so grim the de- your decades of <laughs> right. so i should there's not <laughs> no, no no it is though it is though and i want to own it and there there has been in the past a lot of shame around this that for so many years i couldn't really have the connections i wanted but but yeah go on <laughs> i should have told you i practice shame therapy <laughs> that's the main like, technique that i employ <laughs> You learned it from your mother. <laughs> I learned it from my mother. It's called ST. I'm developing a manual around it. <laughs> Thank you for pushing back on that. But no, so I do. No, no, but it's, it, it's not a pushback against you, though, because it is an accurate statement. And I do. I, I really do want to own it. I mean, I, yeah. I don't think. I, yeah. That yeah, was the the results of my OCD and the unconscious choices I made were to make me feel very isolated for many years. Yeah. Point, my point is with these two more recent relationships we're talking about, there was movement and there was progress and you were sitting with the doubts and not letting them control you. And it brings to mind for me, you know, what one is taught in, uh, in meditation practice where it's like, no, the thoughts are always going to be flying around your brain and bothering you. And what we try to do with them is just sort of let them be there, let them float around, not take them so seriously not be overly identified with them and it sounds like that's what you are increasingly learning how to do with these doubts and it really came down to a willingness thing and that i think comes down to psychedelics have been instrumental in that greater body awareness basically the willingness to be in my experience and to allow my mind to do what it's doing without trying to control it because of course ocd is just a strategy to control our minds to control our thoughts and our experiences yeah Yeah. so i'm sure this will come up with clara too is this question of how do we make peace with the fact that we're making progress and getting somewhere but we're still not where we want to be and how do we be okay with that? I think that's a super juicy question. And I feel, it's, it's, I, I, I would imagine that's going to be, that's going to be present in our discussion of Clara too, where it's like, oh yeah, we're getting closer, but we're not there yet. Can I, can I be at peace with that? Another Zeno's paradox, getting closer <laughs> totally. and closer. And of course it is that way. I mean, uh, like you said, the thoughts are always going to be there for a long time. My goal, and certainly you know, even the mushroom cure, I talk about this. My goal was to have this transcendent psychedelic experience that would fix me. Yeah. And pre-psychedelics, I looked at other things that way. Meditation. I was obsessed with meditation for many years. This is going to fix me. Being a great musician is going to fix me. All these things. And I, I hope, maybe I'm not entirely <laughs> past that, but I believe there's a level of, yeah, gut acceptance that, mm. oh, this is my mind is going to do this stuff till the day I die, but yet I can learn ways to operate and chart a course of action that is more in line with my heart. Really? Yeah. I think a lot, a lot of my journey, ongoing journey has, has been in that direction. 
And a lot of that comes down to willingness to be uncomfortable. Certainly freedom from OCD is all for me. It's all about willingness to be uncomfortable. And then the the, the, the paradox that if you're actually willing to be uncomfortable, you'll be a lot less uncomfortable than if you're trying to get rid of your discomfort b- via obsessive thinking and compulsive behavior. That's beautiful, man. I, don't, I think you're fixed. What do you need me for? I'm fixed. Sweet. <laughs> what do I owe you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I had one other curiosity about Maddie and Beth, which is that it's notable that both of them had other romantic attachments that played some role in the relationships falling apart and it it made me curious if that either with them or with other relationships if that's ever been a way of protecting yourself is to fall for someone who has a primary partner or who who won't commit to you because it's sort of in my mind it's a little bit of another variation of the summer camp relationship where you can totally let yourself go because you know that they that this person isn't going to be relying on you for their to have their primary emotional partnership needs met and also that there's no kind of quote-unquote risk that i'm trying to reverse what you said from my perspective right because the summer camp thing is this sort of it can't i look at it as like it can't really go anywhere so i can open up freely I don't have yeah. to guard myself because there's built-in hard stops because camp is going to end in August or because this person is going to go back to her ex. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it, it it's a good question. And I, w- I will say I've had, it feels like more than my fair share of being attracted to women who turn out to be lesbians <laughs> and, and, uh, and often other people are like, what, you didn't realize she was a lesbian. It seemed pretty obvious. <laughs> so I don't know if that's, if that's a manifestation of the same thing, but we, well, and the which, age difference thing could be its own manifestation of this. Yeah. So my experience is I fully recognize it as a potential obstacle in theory but the woman whom I've really fallen for with an age difference, they re- it really feels to me like the age difference is not a factor. It genuinely does. With Maddie, it just felt like it felt like we were at the same level intellectually, obviously, but also even life experience. Yes, she'd had less life experience, of course, by virtue of <laughs> less life, but it never felt to me like I was in a sort of more of a a role of I'm wiser than her or I know more than her. I learned things from her. She learned things from me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Beth, there was an age difference too, and not an insignificant one. She was uh, 30, but certainly with her as well, it didn't really feel like there was a difference in maturity or experience, which is not to negate the possibility that you're offering up that in some way it is my attraction to younger women is a way of finding people where there's, it feels like it can't really work out. But with both of them, it did feel like this could work out. It it didn't feel like there were limits on how, how deeply we could get to know and connect with each other. Yeah. Another interesting thing that happened with Beth is, so it didn't end all at once. It was like a strong yes for me. It was a strong yes from her. We were spending a lot of time together and then it felt like she was distancing herself a little bit. She wouldn't immediately respond to my texts the same way. We had plans to see each other and she canceled 
for good reason. She'd have a justification. She was really tired. She had a lot of work to do, but it felt to me like there was a palpable shift from her being like, yes, I want to spend as much time as with Adam as I can to, you know, I still want to see him, but it's not as high a priority. It wasn't a very long relationship. We had a few weeks where it was a hell yes. Then a couple of weeks where it was, I felt she was kind of distancing herself. And then finally it's over. And those weeks when it felt like she was distancing herself, I found myself reacting in a way where when I sensed her distancing herself, I wanted to shut the door completely. I wanted to just walk away entirely. Mm -hmm. It triggered this vulnerability and almost an anger where it felt to me like if, if, if I would narrate the emotion, then it would be something like this. It'd be like, oh, you're going to take a step back. Well, screw you. I'm going to walk back a mile. Like I wanted to pull it away before she could hurt me in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a thing that people do. Yeah. You're saying I'm not a special unique flower. (laughs) Oh, I'm, you are absolutely a special unique flower, but that particular one of your petals I've seen before. <laughs> it's yes, you, you've inhaled its fragrance <laughs> on the vine of others. Yeah. And it was. Does that make you want to distance yourself from me? <laughs> exactly. This podcast is over. Transference interpretation. <laughs> Finally, we get there. I remember one moment where like. We were going to have plans, and then she was like, I don't think I can do it tonight. And I felt this upwelling of kind of vulnerability and then anger. And then I said to myself, you know what? Just pull the plug. Just walk away. And when I had that thought, I felt profound peace. Yeah. I was like, why should I even put myself through this? Something's happening. I don't know what's happening, but this feels <laughs> weird and awkward. It feels like I'm asking for more than she wants to give me. And fuck that. I don't need that. If she doesn't fully appreciate me, if she's not head over heels over me, then no, screw her. Yeah. Why do humans so badly want to be certain of things? Why is uncertainty just so, you know, if we can get the answer to that, then. I think I can answer that. I think I can answer that. I think because in uncertainty, there's at least the potential of danger, yeah. right? There's a, I mean, go back to our evolutionary past. There's a rustling in, the, in those bushes. Probably it's just a bird or a squirrel. <laughs> it could be a tiger. And so first of all, investigate if you can eliminate that uncertainty. But if you can't, you know what? It's probably safer to just get the fuck away from that particular bush on the off chance it's a tiger. Yeah. Certainty implies safety. When you yeah. know what's going on, you you know how to control and protect yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So the question is, why do we still have hardware and software systems that are tuned for the Serengeti rather than for relationships in the modern world that are none of these were, were tiger in the bushes types of situations, right? Like you could sit and stay with the discomfort and you're not going to get eaten, but it feels, believe me, I know how much it feels (laughs) totally life or death. And obviously that's something we're going to be excavating over time is like, are there things we can identify in your past that may have, that may have helped tip the dials toward toward this fear response. 
Yeah, no, we'll we'll, we'll get to my mom. <laughs> Jordan is just Jordan is just he's just chomping at the bit for these early episodes until we can get to the mom. Episode. No, I'm gonna sit. I'm gonna sit patiently in the uncertainty of not knowing when we're gonna get to your mom, <laughs> and I'm just gonna tolerate that. But and again, this is something that you've really brought me around to. Where yes, I think absolutely there there's some stuff there, but I would say that this intolerance to uncertainty is certainly not limited to the domain of personal relationships. It seems like a generally higher than average intolerance of uncertainty and also maybe a generally higher than average belief, albeit probably delusional belief that I can eliminate uncertainty. I think that's part of it with the OCD is that other people may recognize that, okay, I'm not really sure what's going on here. It's a little bit uncomfortable, but c'est la vie, whereas I have this real drive to take yeah. action even if it's just action between my ears to try to figure out what's going on and optimize my response yeah and uh all of these relationships we're talking about are pretty they're not slow burns for lack of a better word it's right pretty all in pretty quickly and studying that might be interesting yeah well i think an element of it could be, it could be a few things, right? One of it could be that I do hunger for this real intimacy. So now that I'm getting it, let me, let me get it. You know, the same way, uh, Coke addicts, they rarely just do one line and then put away their stash for the night. (laughs) But it could also be a function of the fact of some recognition at an unconscious level that if I, if I go too slow, my mind is going to have too much time to sink its hooks into this whole thing and find reasons why I shouldn't do it. Ooh. Or if you just kind of jump in, then it's almost like my mind is saying, whoa, 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 this isn't safe. This isn't safe. But it's too late because my heart is opening up rapidly and I'm connecting deeply. And that feels so good. Yeah. I have that with food sometimes. <laughs> if I'm eating something that I know I've made myself too big of a serving but it's really good and I want to finish it. And for some reason I have the compulsion to finish everything I put on my plate. Have you ever, have you ever done this where you sort of stuff it in because you don't want to let your stomach catch up and tell you that you're too full? <laughs> no, I haven't. Okay. That's just uh, a me thing. That's, that's a, yeah, that's, um, I don't know if I trust you to work with me anymore, man. That's pretty <laughs> fucked up. That's my version of shame therapy. <laughs> That's good medicine. You are a sick, sick person. But yeah, I, I, it, it does sound like a somewhat similar impulse, which is I before mean, the doubts catch up with you. Yeah, yeah. So maybe there was an element of that. I'm speculating. It wasn't a conscious thing. I, yeah. I thought at the time, yeah, but this desire to really dive in fast and drink it all up, like it's a, like you're a thirsty man in in the desert coming upon an oasis or something. Yeah, but it also felt like with both of them, with both Maddie and Beth, it really did feel specific to them, by which I mean, it didn't feel like, oh, I just want to have this experience and I can have it with them. It felt like, yeah, these are great people who I'm really enjoying connecting with. And at this moment, there's no one in the world I'd rather spend time with than 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 Beth or than Maddie. And it seems like there's no one in the world they'd rather spend time with than me. So sure, we're both free. Let's see each other for the second or third night in a row. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't, I really don't want it to sound like I'm pathologizing that tendency to dive in really quickly because I actually think that's beautiful. And I personally have some, I'm a little envious of that. I think I tend to be more protected. And 
so I sort of I long for some for that feeling of head over heelsness. Mm-hmm. I think it's really great that you're able to just go for it like that. Yeah, yeah. My heart wants to open. I think that's yeah. what hearts want to do, and yeah. it had been denied it for so long. So, and then when things started to fall apart with Beth, yes, there was this this impulse towards anger and towards just slamming the door, but I didn't fully indulge that. I was able to stay in there, but I felt this growing sense of insecurity and, and ultimately, yeah, then she got back together with her ex. And that brings us what to about a year ago. And to really get current since then, there's been a sense of oh, I thought with Maddie and then Beth, I was kind of on the right track. But now it's been a while. I haven't met anyone else. And it feels like maybe I'm just doomed to to being alone. And starting like sort of late last year, I started feeling real despair around this. Mm. Feeling like, man, there's just something broken with me. Because clearly it feels to me like relationships are not easy, but it seems to me like everyone in the world has relationships. Yeah. It feels like everyone I know, they're in relationships, they're out of relationships, they get married, they get divorced, they fall in love, they fall out of love, they get cheated on it. Uh, you know, so but it seems like the the sort of baseline of most people's existence is regular relationships, regular romantic connections, and yet for me, I've been alone for so long and it really started to feel like okay, at some level, I must be blocking this. It can't be this fucking hard for me when it seems relatively easy for everyone else. Again, not easy like relationships are easy, but easy in the sense of people seem to easily get into relationships. Yeah. And yet here I am, 17 years since that heartbreak that gave me OCD and still alone. And I started feeling really despondent, really hopeless. I remember one day I just felt so lonely and so hopeless about this. I just started crying alone in my apartment just feeling like there's something very, very broken in me Mm. and I don't know what to do about it. And it felt to me like at some level I'm choosing to be alone, even though I so desperately want to open my heart and love. Mm -hmm. Mm. And then I had a conversation with a dear friend of mine on a Saturday night when we were doing stand-up. Let me give a little bit of context to this. So I've been doing stand-up for 12 years and I have an ambivalent relationship with it. There's a lot I love about it, but I often resent what a limited form it is. You have a very specific obligation. You have to make people laugh, and that's beautiful. The limitations, the restrictions enable infinite potential creativity, but it also feels to me sometimes like I'm up there just making people laugh for the sake of making them laugh, while all the deeper stuff that's going on is, is, is not brought to the surface. I would say I'm much more self-revealing than the vast majority of comics. I talk about my life in a pretty open, raw way. But even so, the nature of stand-up, it's a craft. And to do it well, it takes a long time to develop and refine jokes. So inevitably, you're up there saying things that maybe they were alive and relevant to you when you first said them on stage six months ago. But now, it's they're just words. Mm is how it was feeling to me at this point. And so this has been a, a, a continual lament that comes up for me. And I, I, I often think about quitting standup because yeah, I can go up there and I'm good at it and I can make pretty much any audience laugh. 
and there's a feeling of validation and satisfaction, but it does sometimes leave me feeling lonely. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm showing them a narrow sliver of myself, but I'm not really showing them the true me. I certainly wasn't going up there talking about how lonely I feel. And so why am I doing it? Is it just an ego thing? And so I was having dinner with this friend. It's a Saturday night, a typical Saturday night in New York. I might do six or seven stand-up shows. Well, I, I just done my first show. I'm having dinner. This friend uh, is, I don't need a pseudonym for him. His name is Daniel Simons and he's a great comic. I suggest you look him up online. His set on Colbert from a, what, six or seven months ago is, is great. And I was telling him about my loneliness and all this stuff. And then, oh, it's time. We both have to go do more shows. And I'm like, I don't even know why I'm doing standup anymore. Like, I should just quit. And he said, instead of quitting, why don't you just talk about what you just talked about with me at dinner? And I'm like, I, I can't. I mean, it's not funny. It's not funny. I have to go up there and make people laugh. It's not funny. And he's like, well, if you're going to quit anyway, what do you have to lose? Mm. And so I did. This is December, this most recent December. I remember the date. It was December. I think it was December 7th. It was that whatever that Saturday was. And I got on stage. I was doing a 30-minute set. And I started out by talking, saying this, saying, I'm very lonely, but I'm very comfortable. So one, one thing that had been rattling around in my brain was, yeah, am I choosing to be alone? Because even though I do feel loneliness, I am comfortable. I have a good life. I have very little stress in my life. I don't have a day job. I get to do what I love. I live alone. I have total control over my, my schedule, over who I see, what I do. And so there was this growing sense that, well, as much as I say I want love, I'm not going to be willing to choose it because I'm just comfortable right now. I feel safe. And so I got on stage. I said these words and I just kept talking. And it was this really kind of an unprecedented experience, not unprecedented. I, I, I've had a few experiences like this on stage, but the first time in a long time where I'm just talking and I continually see the urge to say something funny, to drop in a little punchline, but I would not take that bait. I would just, I just kept getting deeper and more vulnerable and I felt very uncomfortable up there. It was not enjoyable at all, but I'll give myself credit. When I decide to commit to something, I commit and I decided as an experiment, I'm going to do this. And I just kept talking as awkward as it was. And at some point, maybe 10 minutes into the set, I became aware of the quality of attention in the room. When you do stand up a lot, you become very aware of the gradations of silence. When it's not going well, you know, you'll, Comics will say, oh, the crowd was, they were dead silent, but they're not really silent. When it's not going well, people are shifting, they're, they're moving around, they're coughing. There's a, a, <laughs> a, a discomfort, a palpable discomfort. But this quality, mm. it reminded me more of the quality of, of silence that I get when I'm doing the mushroom cure and it's going really well and the audience is really engaged. People were just riveted. Wrapped attention. No one was moving. And I didn't know if it was like, wow, we can't believe how bizarre this dude is, what a freak this guy is. And we're just like, <laughs> we're, we're just watching this train wreck of a human. Or if in some perverse sense, they were enjoying themselves, but I just knew I'm just going to keep doing it until my time is up. And I got off stage and people came up to me afterwards 
in a way they don't usually. Usually as a comedian, people come up to you and they'll say, at least for me, they'll be like, oh, that was really funny, or I loved how smart your comedy was, or you know, they, they appreciate it. But this was people coming up to me who were touched and moved in a different way. Mm. Some people are like, wow, I've, I've never seen anyone talk like that on stage before. Thank you. People were just saying, thank you. I had wow. a married couple come up to me afterwards and say they related so much. Even though what I talked about on stage was loneliness, they said, we're married and we love each other. And everything you said resonated with us. Mm. And among the people who came up to me afterwards was this really stunningly beautiful woman who was seemed very clearly interested in me, which shocked me because I assumed when I was up there talking about loneliness, I mean, it's a failure. I'm basically saying I've failed at the most basic function of life, which is mating. I've failed. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pariah. I thought people would be like, oh, wow, what a loser. And instead, this beautiful woman is asking me for my number and asking when I can hang out, which was a little bit of a light bulb moment where I'm like, oh, actually, this people seem to appreciate this at multiple levels. The last thing I'll say about this set is my perception when I was on stage was I was getting a few laughs. And often when I get a laugh, I wouldn't even know why people were laughing because there were no punchlines. But I taped the set. And when I listened to it, there were actually a lot of laughs. I huh. felt so awkward and com uncomfortable. I wasn't even aware of it. There weren't as many laughs as there would be from a typical stand-up set with a lot of punchlines. But there were people were laughing. And that set me off on this new course where... For the first time in years, stand-up felt really vital, full of life, full of excitement. And I was going up there and just talking about exactly what was going on in my life. If I felt lonely, I'd talk about feeling lonely. Uh, a lot of it was about loneliness. If I felt angry or anxious or was having OCD, I'd talk about that. And it didn't always go that well. Sometimes the audiences were bored. But more often than not, people were engaged. And I was discovering so much more as a performer by going up there without an agenda. Mm. And I was meeting a lot of women. <laughs> <laughs> that night was not an anomaly with that woman, December 7th. That was, I was, it's probably worth saying that, I, I think we mentioned this on the first or second episode, most women I've met, I've met through performing after shows. But this was a quantity and a quality, I mean, quality, I know it's, it makes it me objectifying woman and all that, but let's just say I was meeting woman who I was more interested in than the woman I typically meet. It just a lot of seemingly very smart, interesting, beautiful women were coming up to me after shows and were being more direct with me in their interest than I'd experienced before. And so mm -hmm. it became this sort of uh, paradox isn't quite the right word, but I'm up there talking about uh, how lonely I am while I'm meeting all these women. And it actually started changing. <laughs> yeah, it's a little counterintuitive at first blush. And this started to permeate every area of my life. I just felt this freedom where it was like, wow, I can, I can be fully myself. I mean, The mm. Mushroom Cure is, I think, an extraordinarily unusually vulnerable show. <laughs> but doing it in stand-up is in some ways almost more vulnerable because the context is so at odds with that. People don't expect that. Yeah. There are few things more terrifying to the average person than the idea of doing stand-up. That sounds so difficult. 
you know what it is, it, and it is difficult. And people often talk about how, oh, you're so brave. I have some jokes about this. I'm not going to do the jokes, <laughs> but they say you're so brave to be a comic. But to me, it's not bravery. What makes stand-up scary, it's quite simple. In other forms of creative expression, you can have some uh, very comforting ambiguity in terms of how the audience is receiving it. If you're in a symphony orchestra, you don't really know if they love it or not. Even if you're in a play, it's like, sure, you can probably tell based on the quality of the audience's attention, but still, you don't, it's kind of like with stand-up, it's, I, I talk about this sometimes on stage, it's like, you're giving me a performance review for my job every 20 seconds, you know, by <laughs> laughing or not laughing, I know exactly how I'm doing every moment. And I think that's what makes it so scary is everyone with stand-up, the audience and the comic, everyone knows what reaction you're going for, laughter. Mm -hmm. And everyone knows whether or not you're getting that reaction or not. Ergo, it's unambiguous whether it's going well or poorly in a way that yeah. it's not with other art forms. And that's what makes it so terrifying. But also, once you've done it for a while, it's a craft, by which I mean yeah. you learn how to reliably get the reaction you yeah. want. You don't have to be that great or special. It's just you do it for years and years yeah. and you learn. I've always felt about your work, not that I've seen everything you've done, but I've always been more drawn to the to the more vulnerable, less jokey stuff that you do, the less punchline driven work that you do. And, and I am too. And, and I think even before I had this sort of <laughs> comedic awakening starting in December, there was <laughs> a growing sense of, yeah, I want to get away from jokes for jokes sake. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love pure jokes. It is an art form. I think laughter mm -hmm. is profoundly spiritual. It's a letting go. It's a release. Yeah. So I don't want to reduce it to like, oh, it's this cheap little thing. But yeah, there was a sense that I wanted to go more in this direction of more revealing and less trying to get a reaction from them. And as I did go in that direction on stage, it felt like everything is opening up for me and I'm meeting all these women. And then... I met Clara and Jordan, we have a decision to make now. We're about an hour in, so we could get into the whole Clara thing or we could break for today. And in our next session, we can talk about that relationship. I'm kind of feeling like we're at a juicy stopping point and maybe we, mm -hmm. we come Cliffhanger. back. <laughs> we kind of cliffhanger the audience we'll be salivating for the next one when we get into the relationship that finally fixes what's broken inside of that. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll see. That's your job, my friend. That's your job. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to, I want to go back before we end to something you were talking about that resonates with me is just this idea of feeling like, how come everyone else can figure out this relationship thing? Like there's 8 billion people on the planet. It's, it's perilously not that difficult apparently to fall in love <laughs> right. maybe it's like it would be better for the we actually need it to be more difficult if we're if we're going to continue having all the resources we need on this planet and yet so you feel that way and yet you can do this thing that most people are like oh my God, I cannot imagine going up on a stage by myself and talking and making people laugh or not making people laugh and being vulnerable. And I've, I've definitely felt that way 
to at points around like one of the things that I'm good at, which is going to lots of school and becoming a doctor. Mm -hmm. That was not, not like it was certainly a struggle and a sacrifice, obviously. And I am certainly no savant. And yet I did really well on a number of very difficult standardized tests that a lot of people are yeah, a lot of people are like, wow, I can't believe you were able to get that score. And I'm like, honestly, I can't believe that you have been in a stable, loving relationship for eight years. And <laughs> two beautiful children. Like, can let's, you tell me how you trade places. <laughs> I'll give you 200 points off my GMAT or whatever, MCAT, if you uh, you let me bang your wife. Sorry, I didn't need to go there. Didn't need to go there. That's, a, that's the jokey thing that Jordan doesn't love. That's the jokey thing. <laughs> Really, the more accurate thing would be, will you let me will you let me be in a emotionally intimate relationship with your wife yeah. and nurture yeah. your children? <laughs> will you let me will you let me spend Thanksgiving with your family? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> will you let me just like will you let me have a stocking <laughs> in your family Christmas? <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Just the, I'm just I'm really I've been fascinated by that in my own life i'm fascinated by that in your life it's like both of us have things that we can do that are pretty impressive to some people and yet we both struggle quite a bit with something that is pretty second nature to at least six billion people in the world well not to make you feel more alone jordan but, <laughs> but, you're fi but you fixed it and so it's just no but i didn't have this struggle when I was younger, this was, I think I mentioned this in episode one or two, where so I was continuously in relationships from 22 to 30, 22 to 29. It felt like it was, there weren't a lot of them. They, these were long-term relationships when I was living with women, but I was one of those people who I now look at and be like, how do you do it? Or it's just like, oh, I'm with this person that ends now I'm with this person. And I think for me, as I was alluding to earlier, the reason it became so difficult was I was, as a result of the traumatic end of this relationship with Annie, I was just unwilling to open my heart. Yeah. So the question is, why are you screwed up? We know why I am. <laughs> it doesn't not have something to do with my mother. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's, <laughs> it was one other thing I, uh, I wanted to say, though, in terms of the comedy being difficult and intimacy, I've said this on stage a lot where I'll talk about how it's less scary for me to be on stage in front of 100 strangers than it is to be in a one-on-one -on -one relationship because on stage, I have more control. I think the reason it yeah. seems scary to lay people stand up is because it's like, well, there's all these people, they can eat you alive. But the truth is once you've done it for long enough, you're pretty in control of that room. You know, mm -hmm. if someone heckles, mm -hmm. you have a pretty good idea of how to handle it. Whereas uh -huh. if I'm sitting across the table from Beth and she says, I'm getting back together with my ex, I, I don't know what to do then. And also in standup, it's a one-way conversation. It's not this dynamic ebb and flow of an interpersonal relationship where you really yeah. don't know what the other person is going to say. You don't know how it's going to hit you emotionally. You don't know what you should say in return. It's a lot more, to come back to this word, uncertain. 
that's the thing about stand-up, and that's why it started to feel boring to me and wrote is because it felt mm-hmm. certain. I knew yeah. if I did these jokes, I was going to yeah. get this reaction. But meanwhile, yeah. deep inside, you know, it's the it's the cliche of the sad clown. I'm up here being like, hey, uh, I'm not really. My, my, my stand-up has always been pretty <laughs> dark and revealing. I'm the sad clown on the yeah, outside again, and Adam, the inside. Adam Strauss's, Adam Strauss's not being vulnerable and keeping people at a distance is a normal person's. Worst nightmare in terms of <laughs> vulnerability, which is an interesting thing, is why I have this deep need to be vulnerable like that. And I think part of it comes back to this need for uh, validation and love. I think there's a part of me that feels like, hey, yeah. if I can be on stage and talk about the darkest, most most shameful things, and people still laugh or applaud then it's like, well, maybe I'm not as bad as I really think I am deep down inside. If they can love me in spite of my flaws, then maybe it makes it easier to love myself, which sounds healthy, but a more pathologic way to look at it is it's like, well, I can't really love myself, so I'm going to try to, as a substitute, get love from other people. That's a huge can of worms to open at the end of a podcast, so maybe we should table that. I mean, that's huge because that totally dovetails with some of my basic ideas about how psychotherapy works i don't think i've ever thought about this before as basically what you're doing in stand-up is it's it's kind of distributed psychotherapy with a hundred different psychoanalysts in the audience all of whom are having a few cocktails because i think that's if i had to break down the mechanism you mean because they're approving in the form of laughter it's sort of approvals and that's what you're yeah, I think if in my mind, if I am to try to break down the mechanism of, of psychotherapy to its simplest form, at least how it has served me in my life, my experience as a patient, I think the mechanism is the following. You come in there, you've got a thing in your head that feels uniquely you that you feel unique uniquely alone with and that feels really shameful you share it with another human being that other human being goes oh that's not so bad you're not a monster and then you just kind of rinse and repeat over and over and over and eventually the idea gets into you that oh i guess i'm not a monster it doesn't happen from once twice three times but over and over and over just like the way a child develops its sense of self through its relationships with its caregivers very slowly over a period of years and years in therapy over years you go through that cycle enough times and eventually you have internalized the feeling that i must not be a monster and when that has happened that's when you're ready to leave your therapy Except if it's shame therapy, in which case you're trying to <laughs> inculcate your patients with, wow, you're a monster. <laughs> it's <laughs> ST. <laughs> ST never ends. But I have to say, in seriousness, what you're saying makes sense, but I think it's limited. It, it assumes that the root problem is shame. And I don't think that's always the case. For example, yeah. with OCD, maybe I'm oversimplifying what you just said, but it sounds like, yes, shame is a huge, huge problem. And it's a universal problem. I really think shame has so little value. I think there's negative and painful emotions can carry a great deal of information and value. But shame, I'm not really sure if that serves us, maybe in certain cases. I'd have to think about it more. Yeah, so that's a great question. Clearly, relieving shame is going to lead to better clinical outcomes and make people feel better and function better. 
But I look at something like OCD and shame is part of the whole package there because you feel shame about engaging in these bizarre rituals. But it's not to me the core of it. The core of it is this avoidant, fear-based, addictive pattern. And so even if you alleviate the shame around OCD, I don't think the OCD, put it simply, I don't think the OCD would clear up if you took care of the shame. Maybe depression yeah. is different. Yeah. I agree with everything you're saying. The shame I'm talking about is much deeper, I think, than the shame you're referencing with OCD. It's not shame for having missed a job interview because you were doing an OCD ritual. It's shame deep, deep down at the core of who you think you are. It's the... It's oh the, yeah, I, it's I have the, that too. <laughs> that shame. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's yeah. the feeling that there's something wrong with me, that I'm not safe right now where I am, that I'm not already okay. Something needs to change. I need to do something. I need to fix myself. I need to fix a situation outside of me in order to feel okay. And I'm certainly, I'm certainly not claiming to have an overarching theory for no emotional illness please take that away from me please yeah but I think, <laughs> I think i that think that would help yeah if everyone in the world could feel the feeling you know basically the feeling that i think that certain plant medicine experiences can give us that mm -hmm. deep meditation experiences especially loving kindness meditation stuff like that that mdma can give people the deep feeling rooted in your bones that you are okay that you are worthy that you don't have to do anything to fix yourself or a situation that you're in that it's all okay right now if if everyone in the world could feel that at one point or ideally on a regular basis i think a lot of problems would be fixed yeah and when you put it that way, I think if you could change one thing, that might be the thing to change, to have that visceral experience of total self-acceptance and being okay in the world. Yeah. So now, basically, we've set the bar. Instead of the, the goal of this podcast being you fixing me, you have to fix everyone. You have to give everyone that experience. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> think about it overnight, and we can we can pick up next session. Yeah, we've got our work cut out for us. We sure do. <laughs> All right, brother. Well, right. I love you. Love yourself. Love you too, man. I, I, I love you despite all of my flaws and your flaws. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> all right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Talk later.